Earth Day. It turns 51 this year. There was a consensus among a group of fourth graders. Earth Day is a special time for picking up litter, cleaning up our towns, roads, rivers, and school grounds. One kid even suggested it's about cleaning up after old people. Ouch. My sister, a fourth grade teacher, had asked me to speak to her class about Earth Day. In the classroom, we talked briefly and asked the kids what this special day means to them. Hands went up. Their experiences reflected a common impression, but picking up trash, while important, wasn't quite the original intent. Gaylord Nelson, a visionary governor and senator from Wisconsin, is credited as one of the founders of Earth Day. During the Vietnam War, he became aware of teach-ins held mostly at college campuses. Their purpose was to provide accurate information about the growing civil unrest rising from the draft and the continuing conundrum in Southeast Asia. He was inspired by the spirit, the zeitgeist of that turbulent time. Why not bring people together for educational opportunities focused on our environmental challenges? Key issues of the first Earth Day back in 1970 included pollution, population explosion, species loss, and global warming. Sounds all too familiar. There is no shortage of topics for environmental teach-ins today. In 1900, the world's human population stood at about 1.6 billion. By the year 2000, the numbers had reversed to 6.1 billion, about a fourfold increase. Our population today is 7.8 billion. We add a billion more people every 12 or so years, with ever-increasing demand for shrinking sources of food and water and living space. At the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in 1760, atmospheric carbon dioxide was 280 parts per million. But release of carbon was about to accelerate in earnest. On May 12th of 2019, author and environmentalist Bill McKibben tweeted, quote, Thinking about Mother Nature today, as of this morning, her carbon dioxide concentration topped 415 parts per million for the first time in many, many millions of years, unquote. That was in the Pliocene when atmospheric carbon was just under 400 parts per million. The, the poles were a balmy 60 degrees Fahrenheit and sea level was more than 80 feet higher than it is now. Imagine what this would look like, given the huge populations living close to the coast. Why has this unprecedented assault on our atmosphere not been a major topic in politics, in the news, or in school curricula? 
John Alroy, Associate Professor of Biological Science at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, put it quite well. Quote, A geological, instantaneous, ecological catastrophe too gradual to be perceived by the people who unleashed it. One more time. A geologically instantaneous ecological catastrophe too gradual to be perceived by the people who unleashed it. Geologic time is so immense it's difficult to comprehend the millisecond that is our stay. Likewise, thinking globally isn't easy. The planet is so huge it's hard to appreciate how small it truly is. Our vocabulary is problematic. We label our life support system not with words such as home or lovely or spiritual, but as natural resources. The implication is to be exploited, consumed. Pristine forests consisting of countless species of trees, nesting birds, wildflowers, and myriad insects, even though highly ecologically developed, are said to be undeveloped. Blank spaces on the map are seen not as corridors of genetic exchange, but as dollarable. Handy places to be consumed or to locate highways, housing, or industry. Plant fossils such as coal are actually huge reservoirs of sequestered carbon removed from the atmosphere over hundreds of millions of years. But they are defined as fossil fuels to be consumed. The value of each individual species is subtle. Each one is an integral part of the vast flora and fauna that produced what are called ecosystem services. Clean air, clean water, living soil, biodiversity, natural beauty, etc. In other words, the life-sustaining environment which, for better or worse, gave rise to us. Protecting and restoring complex ecosystems has an added benefit. They hold the answers to scientific questions we may someday be smart enough to ask. As diversity declines, some point out that extinction is natural. True, but there is a background rate that has been estimated from the fossil record at up to four extinctions per million species per year, or about 40 per year. The problem is that right now we are seeing around 27,000 extinctions annually just in the tropics. The total number of species is not known, but it has been approximated at 10 million, give or take only around 1.9 million have been identified. Elizabeth Colbert, in her book, The Sixth Extinction, actually provides good news. 
she suggests the difference between now and the five previous mass extinctions is this one is man-made. If it were a giant asteroid or excessive volcanic activity, there's not a thing we could do about it. But since it's human-caused, we can fix it. We are among the most adaptable species on this planet. Ergo, change? Yes, we can. In fact, we've done this before. You may remember the Montreal Protocol first signed in 1987. This was in response to the unintended impact human activity discharge of chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, was having on our atmosphere. A hole had appeared in the ozone layer of the stratosphere over Antarctica. That layer of concentrated ozone absorbs most of the UV radiation reaching Earth from the sun. A cooperative effort among nations greatly reduced the emissions of CFCs. It is astonishing what cooperation can accomplish, even on a global atmospheric level. According to EPA, continued declines in ozone-depleting emissions is expected to result in a near-complete recovery of the ozone layer near the middle of the 21st century. Near-complete recovery. Yes, we can. We have the knowledge, as Aldo Leopold points out, the outstanding scientific discovery of the 20th century is not television or radio, but rather the complexity of the land organism. We know the Earth is warming due to greenhouse gases. We know the consequences are catastrophic. We know the cause. We have the know-how and the technology to fix it. Attitude is everything. There's a Latin saying, docendo discimus, by teaching we learn. Each year, around April 22nd, Earth Day is a fitting time for teach-ins tailored to various age groups. These need to be held throughout the country, whereby people teach and learn about environment, from problems to strategies to action. For Earth Day, we took the fourth graders on a walking teach-in on a trail through a small wooded area adjacent to the school. We set out to learn about habitat, which essentially means address. I asked the class to explain what is most important in their home habitat. Prompted by a few leading questions, hands went up. They identified the basics. Food, water, shelter, Many definitions also include cover, places to nest, and space, which implies places to hunt or escape, and elbow room. We discovered how natural habitats are different from, but similar to, our own. The kids got up close and personal with flowers, leaves, buds, insects, and spiders. Along the way, we saw nests, 
tree holes, and burrows? Did a predator-prey activity shared stories and learned a, a couple of unique plant names? The kids could see that just as a warm home habitat is crucial in their lives, so too healthy habitat is crucial to the lives of all critters. A forest is way, way more than just wood. After retirement, my wife Mary and I returned to northeast Wisconsin and bought a house near Lake Michigan. The nearly half-acre landscape was a lifeless, barren lawn. A poverty of plants, but a wealth of wind. We spent the first few years planting trees, shrubs, and perennials. Rule of thumb? 70% native, 30% other. We added birdhouses, a robin roost, even a toad abode. For water, we simply put up a birdbath. Just outside the dining room window, we established a bird feeding station, close enough to the window to minimize collision hazard. We use no pesticides or herbicides. Not only does this make our yard healthier for wildlife, it's also a huge benefit for us, not to mention friends and relatives who visit, especially our granddaughter who is a toddler. The typical weed killers, whether personally or professionally applied to urban yards, contain 2,4-D, a major ingredient of the infamous Agent Orange. This is a known endocrine disruptor and can contribute to cancers such as lymphoma and leukemia. And if that's not bad enough, can be brought in on shoes, making our floors and carpeting toxic. And by the way, they also infiltrate the watershed and travel downstream. Because we live near Lake Michigan, we get a lot of small insects and non-native orb weaver spiders. I used to wash excessive spider webbing and debris off our windows several times a summer for the first few years. But then I noticed as our native plants prospered and occupied an increasing percentage of our landscape, birds became more abundant. My window washing chores diminished. I came up with Dale's first law of native landscaping. Diversity is inversely proportional to pests. The more diversity of native flora and fauna in a landscape, the fewer pest issues. Thanks to our growing eco-yard, our house is now home. Not just to us, but also to a wide variety of beautiful insects, as well as birds, including chickadees, catbirds, cardinals, grackles, goldfinches, song sparrows, and hummingbirds. From our yard, they get only organic, free-ranging spiders and insects to feed to their nestlings. Our trees, shrubs, and flowers continue to mature and spread.
Not only does this add to our property value, it reduces greenhouse gas by converting thousands of tons of atmospheric carbon into biomass, i.e. roots, berries, nuts, cones, trunks, branches, leaves, needles, and flowers, all while restoring flora and fauna, atmospheric oxygen, and building rich organic soil. Truly a win-win-win situation. According to Dr. Doug Tallamy, author of Bringing Nature Home, if homeowners would convert significant parts of their home landscape to high-quality habitat with native plants, this could become akin to adding a 20 million acre national park, a huge benefit for America's beleaguered biodiversity. What's more, it could theoretically remove some 400 million tons of carbon from the atmosphere each year. Attitude is everything. I'll leave you here with a bit of advice from our fourth graders. Quote, we should have every day be Earth Day. Happy birthday, Earth Day. <laughs>